Part Nine of The Ultimate Weapon by John Campbell, Jr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Nine. <sighs> they can't take this at least, sighed McLaurin as they retreated from Luna. I didn't think they could right away. I'm wondering, though, if they haven't something we haven't seen yet. Besides which, give them time, give them time. Well, give us time, too, snapped McLaurin. How are you coming? Buck smiled. I'm sure I don't know. I have a machine, but I haven't the slightest idea of whether or not it's any good. Why not? I can destroy, I hope, but I can't build up their ray. I can't test the machine because I haven't their ray to test it against. What can we do to test it? The only thing I can see is to call for volunteers and send out a six-man cruiser. If the ship's too small, they may not destroy it with the big crumbler rays. If it's too large and the machine didn't work, we'd lose too much. Twelve hours later, the IP men of the Lunar Bank Fort were lined up. McLaurin stepped up to the platform and addressed the men briefly, told them what was needed. Six volunteers were selected by a process of elimination. Those who were married, had dependents, officers, and others were refused. Finally, six men of the IP were chosen, neither rookies nor veterans, six average men, and one average six-man cruiser, 111 feet long, 22 in diameter. It was the T-208, a sister ship of the T-247, the first ship to be destroyed. The T-208 started out from Luna and, with full acceleration, sped out toward Phobos. Slowly she circled the satellite, while distant scouts kept her under view. Lazily the Miran patrol on Phobos watched the T-208, indifferent to her. The T-208 dove suddenly, after five fruitless circles of the tiny world, and with her four-foot UV-beam flaming, stabbed angrily at a flight of Miran scouts berthed in the very shadow of a great battle-cruiser, one of the interstellar ships stationed here on Phobos. Four of the little ships slumped in incandescence. Angrily the terrific sword of energy slashed at the frail little scouts. Angrily the Miran interstellar ship shot herself abruptly into action against this insolent cruiser. The cruiser launched a flight of the Mercury torpedoes. Flashing, burning, ultraviolet energy flooded the great ship, harmlessly, for the men were, as usual, protected. The Miran answered with the neutron beam, atomic and gamma bombs, and the crumbler ray. Gently, softly, a halo of shimmering violet luminescence built up around the T-208. The UV beam continued to flare, wavering slightly in its aim, then fell off to one side. The T-208 staggered suddenly, wandered from her course, whole but uncontrolled, for the men within the ship were dead. Majestically the Miran swung along beside the dead ship. A great magnetic tow-cable shot out toward it, to shy off at first, then slowly to be adjusted, and take hold in the magnetic shield of the T-208. The pilots of the watching scout ships turned away. They knew what would happen. It did. Five, ten, twenty seconds passed. Then the dead man took over the ship, and the stored power in the atoster tanks blasted in a terrible flame that shattered the metal hull to molecular fragments. 
The interstellar cruiser shuddered and half rolled over at the blasting pressure. Leaking seams appeared in her plates. The scouts raced back to Luna as the Miran settled heavily, and a trifle clumsily to Phobos. Miran radio beams were forcing their way out toward the Miran station on Europa to be relayed to the headquarters on Jupiter, just as Solarian radio beams were thrusting through space toward Luna. Said the Miran messages, Their ships no longer crumble. Said the Solarian messages, The ships no longer crumble, but the men die. His deep eyes burning tensely, Buck Kendall heard the messages coming in and rose slowly from his seat to pace the floor. I think I know why, he said at last. I should have thought, for that too can be prevented. Why? What in the name of the planets? asked McLaurin. It didn't kill the men in the forts. Why does it kill the men in the ships, when the ships are protected? The protection kills them. But they had the protective oscillations on all the way out, protested the commander. Think how it works, though. Think, man. The enemy's field is an electric field oscillation. We combat it by setting up a similar oscillating field in the metal of the hull ourselves. Because the metal conducts the strains, they meet and oppose. It is not a shield. A shield is impossible, as I have said, because of energy concentration factors. If their beam carried a hundred thousand horsepower in a ten-foot square beam, in every ten square feet of our shield we'd have to have one hundred thousand horsepower. In other words, hundreds of times as much energy would be needed in the shield as they used in their beam. We can't afford that. We had to let the beams oppose our oscillations in the metal, where, because the metal conduct, they meet on an equal basis. But when two oscillations of slightly different frequencies meet, what is their result? In this case, a heterodyne frequency of a lower-end harmless frequency. So I thought. I was partly right. It does not harm the metal, but it kills the men. It is supersonic. The terrible shrill sounds destroy the cells of the men's bodies. Then, when their dead hands release the controls, the automatic switches blow up the ship. God! We stop one menace, and it is like the Hydra, for every head we lop off, two spring up. Ah, but they are lesser heads. Look, what is the fundamental difference between sound and light? One is a vibration of matter, and the— Ah! Eliminate the material contact. Exactly. All we need to do is let the ships operate airless, the men in spacesuits. Then the air cannot carry the sounds to them. And by putting special dampening materials in their suits, we can stop the vibrations that would reach them through their feet and hands. Another six-man ship must go out, but this ship will come back. And with the order for another experimental ship went the orders for commercial supplies of this new apparatus. Every IP ship must be equipped to resist it. Buck Kendall sailed on the six-man scout that went out this time. Again they swooped once at Phobos, again Miran's scout ships crumbled under the attack of the vicious UV beams. The Mirans were not waiting contemptuously this time. In an instant the great interstellar ship rose from its berth, its weapons working angrily. The crumbler rays snapped out at the T-253. 
Kendall stared into the periscope visor intently. Clumsily his padded hands worked at the specially adapted controls. The soft hiss of the oxygen release into his suit disturbed him slightly. The radiophones in his helmet carried all the conversations in the ship to him with equal clarity. He watched as the great ship angled angrily up. His vision was momentarily obscured by a violet glow that built up and reached out gently from every point of metal in the ship. The instant Kendall saw that, the T-253 was fleeing under his hands. The test had been made. Now all he desired was safety again. The ion rockets flared recklessly as, crushed under an acceleration of four Earth gravities, he sank heavily into his seat. Grimly the Miran ship was pursuing them, easily keeping up with the fleeing midget. The crumbler became more intense, the violet glow more vivid. The UV beam was reaching out directly behind now. The— With a cry of agony Kendall ripped the radiophone connection out of his suit. A soft hiss of leaking air warned him of too great violence only minutes later for his ears had been deafened by the sudden shriek of a tremendous signal from outside. Instantly Kendall knew what that meant, and he could not communicate with his men. There was no metal in these special suits, even the oxygen tanks were made of synthetic plastics of tremendous strength. No scrap of vibrating metal was permissible. The padded gloves and boots protected him, but there was a new and different type of crackle and haze from the metal points now. It was almost invisible in the practically airless ship, but Kendall saw it. Presently he felt it as he desperately increased his acceleration. Slow, creeping heat was attacking him. The heat was increasing rapidly now. Desperately he was working at the crumbler protection controls, but immediately set them back as they were. He had to have the crumbler protection as well. Grimly the great Miron ship hung right beside them. Angrily the two four-foot UV beams flashed back, seeking out some weak spot. There were none. At her absolute maximum of acceleration the little ship plunged on. Gamma and atomic bombs were washing her in flame. The heavy blocks of paraffin between her walls were long since melted, retained only by the presence of the metal walls. Smoke was beginning to filter out now and Kendall recognized a new and deadlier menace. Heat. Quantities of heat were being poured into the little ship, and the neutron guns were doing their best to add to it. The paraffin was confined in there, and like any substance it could be volatilized, and as the vapor developed pressure, explosive pressure. The Miron seemed satisfied in his tactics so far, and changed them. Forty-seven million miles from Earth, the Miron simply accelerated a bit more and crowded the Solarian ship a bit. White-faced, Buck Kendall was forced to turn a bit aside. The Miron turned also. Kendall turned a bit more. Flashing across his range of vision at an incredible speed, a tiny thing, no more than twenty feet long and five feet in diameter, a scout ship appeared. Its tiny nose ultraviolet beam was blasting a solid cylinder of violet incandescence a foot across in the hull of the Miron, and to the Miron, angling swiftly across his range of vision. 
Its magnetic fields clashed for a thousandth of a second with the T-253, instantly meeting and absorbing the fringing edges. Then it swept through the Miron's magnetic shield as easily. The delicate instruments of the scout instantaneously adjusted its own magnetic field as much as possible. There was resistance, enormous resistance. The ship crumpled in on itself, the tail vanished in dust, as a sweeping crumbler beam caught it at last, and the remaining portion of the ship plowed into the nose of the Miron. The Miron's force control room was wrecked. For perhaps a minute and a half the ship was without control, then the control was re-established, and in vain the telescopes and instruments searched for the T-253. Lightless, her rockets out now, her fields damped down to extinction, the T-253 was lost in the pulsing, gyrating fields of half a dozen scout ships. Kendall looked grimly at the crushed spot on the nose of the Miron. His ship was drifting slowly away from the greater ship. Presently, however, the Miron put on speed in the direction of Earth, and the T-253 fell far behind. The Miron was not seriously injured. But that scout pilot, in sacrificing life, had thrown dust in their eyes for just those few moments Kendall had needed to lose a lightless ship in a lightless space. Lightless, for the Mirons at any rate. The IP ships had been covered with a black paint, and at no time at all Kendall had gotten his ship into a position where the energy radiations of the sun made him undetectable from the Mirons' position, since the radiation of his own ship, even in the heat range, was mingled with the direct radiation of the sun. The sun was in the Miron's eyes, both actual and instrumental. An hour later the Miron returned, passed the still lightless ship at a distance of five million miles, and settled to Phobos for the slight repairs needed. Twelve hours later the T-253 settled to Luna for the many rearrangements she would need. I rather knew it was coming, Kendall admitted sadly but danged if I didn't forget all about that. And cost the life of one of the finest men in the system. Jehenson's family get a permanent pension just twice his salary, McLaurin. In the meantime... What was it? Pure heat? But how? Pure radio. Nothing but short-wave radio directed at us. They probably had the apparatus, knew how to make it, but that's not a good type of heat ray because a radio tube is generally less than eighty percent efficient, which is a whale of a loss when you're working in a battle and a whale of an inconvenience. We were heated only four times as much as the Miron. He had to pump that heat into a heat reservoir, a water tank probably, to protect himself. Highly inefficient and ineffective against a large ship. Also he had to hold his beam on us nearly ten minutes before it would have become unbearable. He was again trying to kill the men and not the ship. The men are the weakest point, obviously. Can you overcome that? Obviously no. The thing works on pure energy. I'd have to match his energy to neutralize it. You knew it's an old proposition, that if you could take a beam of pure monochromatic light and divide it exactly in half, and then recombine it in perfect interference, you'd have annihilation of energy. Cancellation to extinction. The trouble is, you never do get that. We can't get monochromatic light, because light can't be monochromatic. 
That's due to the Heisenberg uncertainty, my pet bugbear. The atom that radiates the light must be moving. If it isn't, the emission of light itself gives it a kick that moves it. Now, no matter what the quantum might have been, it loses energy in kicking the atom. That changes the situation instantly, and incidentally the color of the light. Then, since all the radiating atoms won't be moving alike, etc., the mass of light can't be monochromatic. Therefore, perfect interference is impossible. The way that relates to the problem in hand is that we can't possibly destroy his energy. We can, as we do in the crumbler stunt, change it. He can't, I suspect, put too much power behind his crumbler, or he'd have crumbling going on at home. We get a slight heating from it, anyway. Into the bargain, his radio was after us, and his neutrons naturally carried energy. Now, no matter what we do, we've got that to handle. When we fight his crumbler, we actually add heat energy to it ourselves, and make the heating effect just twice as bad. If we try to heterodyne his radio, presto, it has twice the heat energy anyway, though we might reduce it to a frequency that penetrated the ship instead of all staying in it. But by the proposition we have to use as much energy, and in fact, remember the eighty percent rule, we've got to take it and like it. But objected McLaren. We don't like it. Then Bill ships as big as his, and he'll quit trying to roast you, particularly if the inner walls are synthetic plastics. Do you know I use them in the Estoradas and Cephid? Yes, were you thinking of that? No, just luck, and the fact that they're light, strong as steel almost, and can be manufactured in forms much more quickly. Only the outer hull is tungsten valerium. The advantage in this will be that nearly all the energy will be absorbed outside, and we'll radiate pretty fast, particularly as that tungsten beryllium has a high radiation factor in the long heat range. What does that mean? Well, ordinary polished silver is a mighty poor radiator. Homely example. Try waiting for your coffee to cool if it's in a polished silver pot. Then try it in a tungsten beryllium pot. No matter how you polish that tungsten beryllium, the stuff will radiate heat. That's why an IP ship is always so blamed cold. You know the passenger ships use polished aluminum outer walls. The big help is that the tungsten beryllium will throw off the energy pretty fast, and in a big ship, with a whale of a lot more matter to heat, the strangers will simply give up the idea. Yes, but only two ships in the system compare with them in size. Sorry, but I didn't build the IP fleet, and there are lots of tungsten and valerium on Earth. Enough, anyway. Will they use that beam on the fort? And can't we use the thing on them? They won't and we won't, though we could. A bank of those new million-watt tubes, perhaps a hundred of them, and we'd have a pretty effective heater, but an awful waste of power. I've got something better. New? Somewhat. I found out how to make the mirror field in a plate of metal instead of a block. Come on to the lab, and I'll show you. What's the advantage? Oh, weight saved and silver metal saved? A lot more than that, Mac. Watch. At the laboratory, the new apparatus looked immensely lighter and simpler than the old. The atoster, the ionizer, and the twin ion projectors were as before, 
great rigid metal structures that would maintain the meeting point of the ions with inflexible exactitude under any acceleration strains. But now, instead of the heavy silver block in which a mirror was figured, the mirror consisted of a polished silver plate, parabolic to be sure, but little more than a half-inch in thickness. It was mounted in a framework of complex stout metal braces. Kendall started the ion flame at low intensity, so the UV beam was little more than a spotlight. You missed the point, Mac. Now watch that tungsten beryllium plate. I'll hold the power steady. It's an eighteen-inch beam, and now the energy is just sufficient to heat that tungsten plate to bright red. But Kendall turned over a small rheostat control and abruptly the eighteen-inch diameter spot on the tungsten beryllium plate began contracting. It contracted till it was a blazing, sparkling spot of molten incandescence, less than an inch across. That's the advantage of focus. At this distance of a few hundred feet with a small beam I can do that. With a twenty-foot beam I can get a two-foot spot at a distance of nearly ten miles. That means that the receiving end will have the pleasure of handling one hundred times the energy concentration. That would punch a hole through most anything. All you have to do is focus it. The trouble being, if it's out of focus, the advantage is more than lost. So if there's any question about getting the focus, we'll get along without it. A real help if you do. That would punch a hole before the stranger ship could turn away as they do now. Kendall nodded. That's what I was after. It is mainly for the forts, though. We'll have to signal the dope to the Mars Center and Demor stations. They can fix it up themselves. In the meantime, all we can do is hold on and hunt, and let's hope better than the strangers do. End of Part 9